Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of violence, kidnapping, and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On May 21, 1924, the Franks family gathered around the table for dinner. Evening meals were a daily ritual, but that night, one member of the family was missing. It was nearly six o'clock, but Mr. and Mrs. Frank's 14-year-old son, Bobby, still wasn't home from school. At first, they brushed off the boy's absence, thinking he simply lost track of time studying or playing tennis. But by nine o'clock, Mr. Franks was getting concerned. He walked the short distance to Chicago's Harvard School for Boys and checked around the campus, but Bobby was nowhere to be found. The worried father headed back home, trying to ignore the panic rising in his throat. But just moments before Mr. Franks opened the door, the phone rang. The maid picked it up, then frantically handed it to Mrs. Franks. Mrs. Franks breathed a sigh of relief, fully expecting to hear her son on the other end of the phone. Her stomach dropped when a gruff masculine voice, not at all like Bobby's, spoke. The man told Mrs. Franks that her son had been kidnapped. He promised that Bobby was perfectly safe and said a ransom letter would arrive in the mail the following morning. As soon as payment was received, little Bobby would return home and the whole ordeal would be over. Around 8 a.m. the next morning, the ransom note arrived. It requested $10,000, about $150,000 today, in exchange for Bobby's safe return. Mr. Franks immediately set to work gathering the funds. He would pay anything to have his son back. But it was already too late. The caller had lied. That very morning, an unlucky passerby found the young boy's body hidden near Wolf Lake, a few miles south of Chicago. 14-year-old Bobby Franks was never coming home. Welcome to Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Wednesday, we step into the world of true crime's most fascinating murder cases and tell the tale of how real-life detectives closed the case. You can find episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free exclusively on Spotify. This is our first episode on the 1924 murder of Bobby Franks. This week, we'll see how a local factory worker stumbled on the young boy's body, cracking open a difficult investigation with few solid clues. Next week, we'll discover the murderer's disturbing motivation and discuss the trial's dramatic conclusion. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. 
Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. At first, Thursday, May 22, 1924, was an average day for Tony Minky. Around 9 a.m., he clocked out of his night shift at a local factory and headed home. He dragged his tired legs along his usual shortcut. The walk wasn't easy. He cut through a swampy area of Chicago's forest preserve, his feet sinking into the soft earth. Luckily, the route was scenic. Birds chirped and flitted in the treetops. Springtime flowers bloomed on sunny patches of the forest floor. Tony took his time, breathing in the beauty of the area. Then he caught a glimpse of something that made him stop short. Someone was sleeping inside a storm drain. Tony could see a pair of small feet sticking out of the culvert. He stepped through the marsh and towards the resting child. Excuse me. You all right in there? Hey, this isn't a good place to sleep. Hello? You need to get out of here. Oh, for Christ's sake. (gasps) Tony Minky discovered the young boy was dead. He backed away in horror, then doubled over in a wave of nausea, struggling to breathe. He couldn't tear his gaze away from the corpse. The boy was entirely nude, his back covered in scratches. His skull was bruised, bloodied, and cracked. He'd been bludgeoned, then dumped in the swampy forest. As if this wasn't strange enough, there was something else striking about the body. The boy's face and genitals were both stained a coppery color. Tony couldn't make sense of it, but he hoped law enforcement could. Tony flagged down a few railroad employees who were working nearby. One presumably contacted police while the others helped Tony pull the body from the pipe and then scout the area. They searched for the boy's clothing, shoes, or any items he might have been carrying. The only thing they could find was a pair of circular, black-rimmed eyeglasses. Tony sat the glasses next to the boy's discolored face. His stomach felt knotted. He couldn't help but imagine the child's last moments. The terror the boy must have felt at being attacked. The force it must have taken to knock the frames off his face. Tony was jolted back to reality when Chicago police officers arrived around 10 a.m. They surveyed the area but were unable to uncover any more evidence. Information about the unidentified body was to be published in the Chicago Daily News that afternoon. 
Around the time Tony Minky stumbled upon the body in the forest, 69-year-old Mr. Jacob Franks, a wealthy, well-known Chicago businessman, was speaking to a bank teller. He requested $10,000 in cash. Although the teller thought the request was strange, he said nothing. Mr. Franks was far too influential to be questioned, so he counted out the bills and handed them over. Mr. Franks returned home. His hands shook so badly he could hardly unlock his front door. Inside, his wife, 47-year-old Flora, sat staring at the phone, quietly dabbing tears from the corners of her eyes. I've got every cent. Oh, Jacob. It's going to be okay. We'll pay them and Bobby will come back home. It'll be like it never happened. You said they would call. That's what the letter said. They'll call and tell us where to drop off the money. We'll do it right away. Bobby will be home for dinner. But what if he isn't? What if they never call? They want our money, not our son. I promise. Mr. Franks tried to keep a brave face as he and his wife waited for the kidnapper to call. He stared out the window while she stared at the phone. Hours of terrible silence passed. Unbeknownst to the worried couple, whispers of Bobby's disappearance were already making their way around Chicago. The Franks family was nothing short of famous in the city. Phone operators who connected the kidnappers called to the Franks' home gossiped, and before long, the press got a hold of the story. One Chicago Daily News reporter knew of the family and pursued the lead. When he got word of the body in the forest, he called Mr. Frank's lawyer, Samuel Edelson, hoping for more information and to give the family a heads up before articles started printing. Hello? Hi there, Mr. Edelson. I'm a reporter with the Chicago Daily News. I must say, there's a lot of chatter over here. Isn't there always? This is different, I'm afraid. You do know Bobby was supposedly kidnapped? I'm not at liberty to say. Well, in any case, you know now. I'm just calling to let you know that a, uh, a body has been found. It'll be printed in the paper this afternoon. I thought the family ought to know first. What kind of a body? One that could very well belong to Bobby Franks. Don't be ridiculous. The corpse matches what I know of the boy's appearance. There was a pair of glasses found nearby. Bobby didn't wear glasses. Good day. Although the lawyer was resistant on the phone, he sent Flora's brother, Edwin Grishin, to the undertakers to check on the body. Then he headed straight to the Franks' home. It would be better to give them the information in person rather than to have them read it in the paper. Mr. Edelson, have you heard anything? You might want to sit down. I don't know how to tell you this, so I won't beat around the bush. A body was found in the woods near Wolf Lake. What kind of body? A teenage boy, but nobody knows if it's Bobby. They, they found glasses nearby. Our Bobby never wore glasses. I, I know, but I sent Edwin to the morgue just to be sure it isn't him. He'll call when he has an answer. Mr. Franks paced anxiously around the room. About 30 minutes later, the phone rang. The lawyer ran to answer it first. Mr. and Mrs. Franks watched, unable to breathe, as Mr. Edelson listened to the voice on the other end. 
The attorney gave one long sigh, met his client's eyes, and hung up the phone. It's him. What do you mean? I'm so sorry. But Bobby didn't wear glasses. And I have the money. I I have it all. $10,000 in cash. It can't be him. Jacob, it's him. Beyond any doubt. Mr. Franks informed his wife of their loss, but Mrs. Franks hardly had a moment to mourn before police arrived at their home. Detectives needed to see the house, the ransom note, and anything of Bobby's that might help them track down his killer. The investigation was officially underway. Up next, Chicago police search for clues about what happened to Bobby Franks. You discover their practices, seek their advice, and let yourself become more vulnerable than ever before. They have the ability to heal what the doctors can't, or so they say. Hi listeners, it's Vanessa from the podcast series Cults. Be sure to check out our four-part special on miracle healers airing right now. Meet figures from around the world who claimed powers and pushed remedies, but harbored more sinister intentions. You don't want to miss it. And if you're looking for more episodes on the most radical and deadly groups in history, tune in to Cults every Tuesday. From Jim Jones and the People's Temple, to Charles Manson and the Manson family, to Keith Raniere and Nexium, you'll uncover the unscrupulous methods used to turn bright-eyed recruits into die-hard believers. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Cults, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. And now, back to our story. On the morning of Thursday, May 22, 1924, a Chicago factory worker discovered 14-year-old Bobby Frank's body in the woods near Wolf Lake, south of Chicago. Bobby's parents, 69-year-old Jacob and 47-year-old Flora, had received a ransom note just hours before, but they now realized the payment was a sham. Their son was already dead. Law enforcement arrived at the Franks' home later that day. Bobby's body had provided few clues. It was clear the boy died of head trauma, but the odd discoloration on his face and genitals had yet to be explained. Moreover, the only evidence found nearby was a pair of eyeglasses that they now knew didn't belong to him. Police hoped Mr. and Mrs. Franks could provide more clues, All they had was the ransom note and their description of the kidnapper's phone calls. Whoever killed their son claimed to be in it for the money. But this was a difficult place to start. Any kidnapper hoping to make a profit would target a wealthy family. The Frankses were wealthy, but it was unclear why the murderer came after them specifically. Any upper-class child could have crossed paths with the killer. 
so it seemed like Bobby was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Unfortunately, investigators weren't sure where that place was. They honed in on Bobby's last known location, the campus of Chicago's Harvard School for Boys. The academy was prestigious. Most, if not all, of Bobby's classmates shared a similar level of money and status. But his teachers didn't. Their pay was nothing like the salary Mr. Franks brought in. $10,000, the amount requested in the ransom note, would have been a life-changing sum. Maybe even enough to kill for. To the police, Bobby's instructors had motive. Plus, they were close to him. They knew his class schedule and his after-school activities. It would be easy for them to find him and get him alone. Most importantly, Bobby likely trusted his teachers. If one of them offered him a ride home or asked for help in their classroom, he'd let his guard down. The next day, Friday, May 23rd, Chicago police questioned the staff of the Harvard School for Boys. Where were you after school this Wednesday? At home, working in my garden. Having dinner at a little patio restaurant on 47th Street. On the couch at my apartment. Right, I'll check on that. Detectives spoke to neighbors, restaurant staff, and landlords. Every teacher's alibi checked out. In fact, the more investigators looked into the Harvard School for Boys, the less likely it seemed that the campus or its staff had anything to do with the crime. After all, the institution was under the close scrutiny of its influential clientele. Far too many eyes were on the school for anything to have happened there. Police needed to look for answers elsewhere. They zeroed in on the ransom note itself. Document examiners were able to determine that the letter had been written on a portable Underwood brand typewriter. Unfortunately, this didn't give them much of a lead. Typewriters of this kind were very common, especially in a large city like Chicago. The note had also been enclosed in an envelope, which the kidnapper made the mistake of addressing by hand. This was a potentially invaluable clue. If police could match this handwriting to a suspect, they could figure out who kidnapped Bobby Franks. However, authorities had no suspects, until a week later when a child started talking. It could be nothing. It could be something. Tell me, one more time. This kid, Irving Hartman, says he was walking home from school about 5 o'clock. This kid, who is 10 years old and presumably has a very active imagination, He's walking, and there's an older kid, probably Bobby, about 30 yards ahead of him. Might not have been Bobby. But it probably was. Anyway, he's walking, and he gets distracted by some flowers or something. Uh, he looks down, admires the little petals, and when he looks back up, Bobby is gone. Right next to where he was, a gray Winton automobile is stopped. As soon as Irving saw the car, it zoomed away. Do you have any idea how many gray Winton automobiles there are in Chicago? Not as many as there are portable Underwood typewriters. Fine. Better get to looking for the right car, then. On one hand, Irving Hartman's statement confirmed what police already suspected. Bobby was most likely kidnapped after leaving school on Wednesday, May 21st. On the other hand, the story opened up an entirely new can of worms. 
Authorities' public request for information about the vehicle led to an influx of reports from all over the city. It seemed everybody had seen a gray Winton at some point, and they each felt obligated to tell officers about their sighting. Although every person who called Chicago police meant well, the huge number of reports became something of a distraction. Innocent people who happened to drive gray Wintons were met with suspicion, and one man was even arrested with little more evidence than the make and model of his car. Ultimately, nothing came of the various sightings. The gray Winton may have left the city, or police couldn't help but think 10-year-old Irving might have been mistaken all along. Chicago police were beginning to feel defeated. Bobby Frank's funeral was scheduled for Monday, May 26th, but officers had nothing to offer his grieving family. Investigators desperately wanted new evidence to give the Franks before their son was buried. On Sunday, May 25th, they decided their only option was to revisit the area where Bobby's body was found. The culvert was in a marshy area of a forest preserve south of Chicago. Some people went there for recreation, while others taught biology or botany classes on the land. Police thought their best bet was to speak to locals who frequented the area. Hunters or teachers who knew the preserve well might have seen someone strange prior to the crime. This line of investigation brought detectives to the home of Nathan Leopold, an affluent 19-year-old graduate student and expert on ornithology, the scientific study of birds. In addition to teaching ornithology classes on the preserve, Leopold also frequented the area to hunt and birdwatch. Leopold had hunted there as recently as the weekend before the kidnapping. Police held on to a thin strand of hope that he could provide clues about Bobby's killer. Mr. Leopold? That would be my father. Oh, no. I do believe I'm looking for you. Nathan? Yes. I was hoping you could answer a few questions about the classes you teach in the forest preserve near Wolf Lake. As I'm sure you've heard, a young boy's body was found in the area. I read. It's tragic. It is. If I'm quite honest with you, our investigation is stalled. Really? Yes, we were hoping you might have seen something strange, anything at all around the time of the boy's disappearance. No, I can't say I did. Well, if you remember anything, be sure to let us know. Of course, officer. Good luck with your investigation. Just like everyone else, Leopold claimed he hadn't seen anything out of the ordinary. Once again, investigators were back to where they started. The next day, May 26th, Mr. and Mrs. Franks held a small private funeral for their son. As they lowered his casket into the ground, they wept, not only because their child was gone, but because they weren't sure if they'd ever know who killed him and why. Chicago police also felt pangs of uncertainty. They had a few pieces of evidence, the typewriter, the handwriting, the possible vehicle description, but nothing that could definitively link anybody to the crime. Then, an officer remembered the pair of glasses found near Bobby's body. They didn't belong to the boy, but they could have belonged to just about anyone else. It was a terrible place to start, but it was a beginning nonetheless. Assuming the glasses were prescription, detectives knew they must have been provided by an optometrist, all of whom kept records of their patients. 
There were only so many eye doctors in Chicago, police would bring the glasses to every single one if they had to. Luckily, they didn't have to go through all that trouble. The first doctor they saw put them on the right track. You want to know exactly who these glasses belong to? That's the goal. I don't think it'll be easy. These lenses are very common. Whoever owns these is farsighted and has a slight astigmatism. That's about all I can tell you. What about the frames then? Could you tell me what store they came from? <sighs> well, they aren't from here. We don't carry this brand. Actually, that's good thinking, Detective. Let me make a few calls. The optometrist called other doctors around the city. As it turned out, there was only one store in Chicago that sold frames like those found in the woods, Almer Co. and Company. Authorities rushed to the store. The clerks at Almer Co. dug through thousands of files, looking for every person who had been sold the same frames and lenses. It took a few days, but the clerks concluded that just three Chicagoans owned those exact same glasses. A man who had since moved out of the country, a woman who had an airtight alibi, and 19-year-old Nathan Leopold. Coming up, authorities confront Leopold about why his glasses were found at the scene. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now back to the story. One week after 14-year-old Bobby Frank's body was discovered in a forested area near Lake Michigan, Chicago police traced a pair of glasses found at the scene to 19-year-old Nathan Leopold. The glasses didn't necessarily suggest that Leopold had a hand in the crime, but they certainly warranted further questioning. On Thursday, May 29, 1924, officers returned to Leopold's home. This time, a servant answered the door. Oh, how do you do? Is Nathan around? Of course. I'll run and grab him for you. He said he's about to go bird watching. Is there any chance you three could come back later? I'm afraid not. Terribly sorry I can't be of help today, boys. Actually, we need you to accompany us to the state attorney's office. You'll have to reschedule your expedition. That's not an option. Are a few birds really more important than solving a murder case? You're right. How selfish of me. Leopold was clearly unhappy to cancel his outing. 
Furthermore, he was understandably concerned about being seen in police custody. His family was equally, if not more, famous than Bobby's, and being dragged into a criminal investigation could drum up unwanted gossip. To accommodate this worry, Chicago police acted with discretion, meeting Nathan at a luxury hotel instead of the criminal court building. They made sure Leopold remained unseen by press or passers-by as they brought him into a room for questioning. Leopold sat down quickly, eager to get the interview over with. I hope this won't take long. I'll get straight to the point then. Why were your glasses found near Bobby Frank's body? What? A pair of black glasses, your black glasses, were discovered mere yards away from Bobby Frank's. That's impossible. Is it? Yes, of course. You're telling me these don't belong to you? I'll admit they look like mine, but no, mine are sitting at home. Can you prove that? Authorities drove Leopold back home. They waited while he searched, but the 19-year-old was unable to find his glasses anywhere. They must have fallen out of my pocket while I was bird hunting the weekend before last. Uh, Maybe you just skipped over them. Mind if we search your room? Um, sure. Maybe you'll have better luck than I did. Chicago police knew they wouldn't find the glasses. They already had them, and for whatever reason, Leopold was lying. This was definitely cause for concern, so detectives took the opportunity to search Leopold's bedroom. Among the many extravagant things they encountered, like leather-bound philosophy books and expensive clothing, police found two items that raised their suspicions further. The first was a Remington 32 caliber automatic handgun. Normally, this wouldn't have been particularly curious, especially in the hands of a person who hunted birds, but you didn't hunt birds with a handgun. And Leopold didn't have a license for the gun. He'd obtained and presumably used it illegally. The second suspicious item was a letter written to someone named Richard Loeb. The note made it clear that the two young men were lovers who had recently gotten into a fight. Police kept their discoveries a secret. They simply requested Leopold come back to the state attorney's office, where he remained in custody overnight. The following morning, Friday, May 30th, Leopold continued trying to explain why his glasses were found in the forest. He said he normally kept them in the front pocket of his shirt or jacket and insisted they must have fallen out while he was hunting. But Leopold had been shooting birds the weekend before Bobby's body was found. A minimum of four days passed before the factory worker discovered the glasses, yet the lenses were completely free of mud. They'd either managed to stay remarkably clean in the swampy woods, or they hadn't been there as long as Leopold said. Still, the 19-year-old stuck to his story. He even tried to show police how easily the glasses could have slipped out by putting them in his shirt pocket and then jumping and falling on the ground. However, no matter how hard Leopold tried, the glasses stayed put. In trying to absolve himself... He only made his story look more unlikely. Even at that point, though, Chicago police didn't really consider Leopold a suspect. 
The 19-year-old had the benefit of money and status. He was a renowned intellectual who graduated college at just 18 years old and had plans to go to Harvard for law school. He was well-to-do, respected, and generally considered to have the whole world at his fingertips. But Leopold was hiding something, and investigators couldn't ignore that. On May 30th, they brought 18-year-old Richard Loeb, Leopold's secret lover and equally affluent, well-educated Chicagoan, in for questioning. Officers kept the men separated and asked each of them to recount their activities on May 21st, the day Bobby Franks went missing. In one room, Leopold said, I went to my classes as usual. About 11 o'clock, I picked up my good friend Richard Loeb and drove us to lunch at Marshall Fields. I sort of rushed through my meal because I was so anxious to get to Lincoln Park. Another friend of mine said they'd seen a hare in there and I wanted to have a look of my own. Richard, of course, couldn't care less about the bird. He started drinking my gin and before I knew it, I was drinking too. And we both got a bit happy, not drunk, but happy. We had dinner. Then Richard said we ought to pick up some girls, so we did. We all drank together for a while at Jackson Park, but the girls were, how should I say, not forthcoming. So we went home. In the other room, Loeb's alibi corroborated Leopold's exactly. Rather than proving their innocence, though, this made the men look even more suspicious. Perfectly matched alibis are almost always a sign of collusion. It was clear to detectives that Leopold and Loeb had agreed on the story prior to being questioned, ironing out details to make sure they didn't contradict each other. Moreover, neither man knew that the police had already found out that they were lovers. The police thought that if the men were gay, it didn't make sense for them to seek out women to sleep with. Police tried to track down the women who supposedly drank with Leopold and Loeb in Jackson Park, but neither man had any information about where they could be reached. Despite this, the teenagers doubled down on their alibis and refused to say anything more. Chicago police now considered Leopold and Loeb their top suspects, and it didn't take long for this to reach the press. In response to articles about their sons, the parents of Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb, who were Chicago millionaires, publicly stated that the young men were innocent. Despite Leopold and Loeb's lies and evasion, their families remained certain they were blameless. There were, however, people willing to offer potentially incriminating evidence. A number of Leopold's classmates from the University of Chicago gave authorities copies of the 19-year-old's class notes. A document examiner determined the notes were written on the same kind of typewriter as the ransom letter, a portable Underwood. Unfortunately, it was impossible to determine if the two documents were created with the same machine without analyzing the typewriter itself. Once again, police returned to Leopold's home. They asked the servant if she'd ever seen a portable Underwood typewriter around the house. She had, but she told officers it hadn't been around for a little over a week. This gave investigators goosebumps. It was May 30th, just over a week since Bobby Franks was kidnapped. It could have been a coincidence, but Leopold's typewriter looked to have gone missing right around the time the ransom letter was sent. Chicago police now felt certain they were on the right track. They questioned Leopold about the portable Underwood, 
and for the first time, the 19-year-old's face betrayed a hint of panic. What kind of typewriter do you use? For your work, I mean. I don't see why that's relevant. Well, you're a student. You must need your own typewriter. Something portable, I'd bet. Am I on the right track? What do you care about my typewriter? You've also got money. Loads of it, as far as I can tell. You must have something nice. A Remington? Or no, I know. An Underwood. I'm right, aren't I? No. That's strange. A few classmates of yours showed us some notes you took with a portable Underwood. I... borrowed it from a friend. Which friend? I don't remember. You're making yourself look pretty bad right now. Someone from my study group. Maybe. I, I don't know. Uh, Morris Shanberg. I'll talk to him. Thanks for the information. Chicago police spoke to Morris Shanberg, along with the other three students in Leopold's study group. They all agreed that Leopold was the only one who owned a portable Underwood. But officers had no idea where to start looking for it. For all they knew, Leopold might have broken it apart or tossed it into Lake Michigan. And without it, they had no way to prove the class notes and the ransom letter were written on the same machine. Luckily, police soon realized they didn't have to worry about the typewriter at all. They realized they had something even better. The document examiner also analyzed the letter found in Leopold's bedroom, the one that showed he and Loeb were lovers who recently argued. He compared this writing to that on the envelope in which the ransom note arrived. Lo and behold, the handwriting matched. Nathan Leopold, or someone with handwriting so similar as to make it indistinguishable, addressed the ransom letter to Mr. Jacob Franks. Leopold Loeb and their families remained unaware of this groundbreaking discovery. In fact, Leopold's father was more certain than ever that his son was innocent. This was because the family's chauffeur had come forward with a crucial piece of information. As the sun set on May 30th, the chauffeur rushed to the state attorney's office, certain he would set Leopold free. He had no idea that he was about to ruin the 19-year-old's carefully constructed alibi. Thanks again for tuning into Solved Murders. We'll be back next Wednesday with part two of Bobby Frank's story. We'll dive into the disturbing motivation behind the murder and discuss the trial that became a national sensation. For more information on the murder of Bobby Franks, amongst the many sources we used, we found, for the thrill of it, Leopold, Loeb, and the murder that shocked Chicago by Simon Botts, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time... Solve Murders True Crime Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Solve Murders was written by Karis Allen, with writing assistance by Giles Hofseth, fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Mickey Taylor. 
The amazing cast of voice actors includes Joe Hernandez, Eddie Lee, Ellie Schiff, Rebecca Thomas, and Kimlin Tran. Solved Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. 